We're in John 13. I'm going to be reading verses 1 to 12. And I'm truly anticipating just being able to share this word with you. You guys are aware it's been kind of like in the, in the oven for about three weeks now because of illness and guests. And so let's, with anticipation, prepare to hear the word. And Lord, in light of that, now would you come? It's the word that matters, not, not the preacher, not the hearer but that the Word proclaimed, which has a life of its own, God's own life speaking through that Word, Christ's life invading our lives through that Word, the Spirit's life imparted by the preaching of that Word. Would you you let this powerful Word shape our minds and hearts about the way we think about God, about the way we think about ourselves, about the way we think about our sin, about the the way we think about who we are in Christ. Would Would you let it grip us? Lord, for believers to be encouraged, for unbelievers to be drawn by that Word to Christ. And above all in this, that we would see Jesus and Him only. In His name we pray. Amen. John chapter 13. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. During supper... When the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I'm doing you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. Peter has said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, uh, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That's why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he'd washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done for you? This is the Word of God. In every great story, there are crucial turning points where the focus suddenly changes. Beginning here in John 13.1, we've reached that kind of turning point. Before this, Jesus has been busy in public demonstrating to whoever is willing to see just who He is, God's Messiah, and how He alone can save. But starting here, the crowds are gone. And Jesus is alone with His disciples with with one object in view, to demonstrate to them how much He loves them and prepare them for what's about to come. Uh, that's why this section, John 13 to 17, is often called the farewell discourse. These are his final words to them before the cross. 
And, and here's the, the really great thing. We get to listen in, in those private conversations as Jesus reveals His deepest heart of love for His people. And so as we open John 13, we suddenly just find ourselves in the upper room with Jesus and His disciples. John doesn't even bother to tell us how we got here. But he does tell us that the Passover meal is just about to begin. Jesus' last supper with His disciples. And so Peter is there, and John is there, and Judas is there. In fact, they're all there. And Jesus, knowing how little time He has left with them, I mean, less than 24 hours from now, He will be dead. He takes this opportunity to demonstrate the full extent of His love. Uh, Verse 1 says, Having loved His own who are in the world, He loved them to the end. As let's begin there. Let's begin with this this understanding, this statement, that the love of Christ for His people simply has no bounds. It, It has no limits. Before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that the hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. And notice John begins here by telling us that Jesus knew something. He knew His hour had come. Now that's a change from earlier in John. Before chapter 12 in John, we've been told repeatedly that the hour had not yet come. It wasn't time yet. But now it is. The cross is within sight and Jesus knows it. Now think about that. If if, if this was you, if, if you were in His place and you knew that an excruciating death was just hours away... Where would your mind be? His mind is on them and His great love for them. A love that He is about to demonstrate to them by His actions. Having loved His own who were in the world. So so this is His mind. He loves them. His every word and action up to this point indeed has been one of love for them. Them. Now, who's the them in that statement? Well, them clearly means His disciples, His own, it says. The same words are used in John 10 when He speaks of His own sheep for whom He will die. His beloved, His chosen by grace, His elect given to Him by the Father to seek and to save. And so it's His disciples by extension. It also includes us. Having loved them this far... He does not stop. Do you understand, dear Christian, if you are in Christ this morning, He will never stop loving you? Look at these words again at the end of verse 1. Having loved His own who are in the world, He loved them to the end. To the telos is the Greek. To the fullest extent possible. Now, that can mean a couple of things. It can mean to the very end of his life. As one man put it, uh, this is, uh, he loved to the very last breath. Or it can mean love to the uttermost, you know, in, to infinity and beyond, a kind of love. Love in its, in its highest intensity. And I think it really is a combination of both. Love to the end and love to the highest. 
The point being, dear one, love like you have never known before. The point is, the love Christ has for His people, it doesn't just stop with words. It's not a hallmark card. It is a burning passion filled with with actions of grace. It, It gets up and it does something. The way Jesus is about to get up and wash their filthy feet, and then He's going to go up to the cross to wash our filthy sins. And so back to this picture that John is painting in verse 2. Again, the picture, the meal is now in progress and Christ's love is on display there at that table. And there sits Judas, heart full of guile, ready to betray Him. Verse 2, during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing all this, prepares to give his life. Satan, we're told, has already swayed Judas' heart to the dark side. Literally, what it says is that the devil has thrown it into his heart. Uh, there's an evil energy at work here. It's a reminder to us, isn't it, that even in the most holy of company, Satan can be found working. He's always at work. And here at that table, the die is cast. Judas has already made up his mind. He is already committed to this devilish course of betraying Christ. And he's sitting there right across the table from Jesus, smiling as if nothing is wrong. And what would you do? If you were Jesus and you knew this smiling man is about to betray you. I think if this was me, the next line would say, and lightning fell from heaven and burned Judas to a smoking crisp. And aren't you glad Jesus is not like me? Wouldn't you pray that I would be more like Jesus and love my enemies the way Jesus so clearly loved His? Jesus knew Yet still He serves, still He loves, still He is ready to pour out His life and death for these who do not deserve it. And of course, it's not just Judas. Peter is there. Just a couple of hours from now, Peter will deny that he even knows Him. And all these others around the table will abandon Him. Just as I would. And don't kid yourself, just as you would in that situation. Listen, there is only one hero at this table. And he is sitting at the head. He's the only one in the room who who knows all that's about to happen, yet he is filled with love and is about to pour it out for these men. Isn't that what it tells us? Verse 3 continues the picture. Jesus, knowing all of this, knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands and that He had come from God and was going back to God, rises from the table and begins to wash their feet, knowing... John says. Second time he's told us Jesus knows. Reminder to us that Jesus is no helpless victim here. The pain, the cross, the betrayal, these things don't just sneak up on him. Jesus knows exactly what's about to come. He knows exactly who he is. He knows why he came. He's known from eternity the heights of glory with the Father from the beginning. When it says in verse 3 that he's going back to God, the words are prostantheon. Same words, by the way, from John 1 1 when Jesus from all eternity past was prostantheon with God in eternity. And he's returning to that. 
And so it tells us in verse 3 that He knows all this. He knows who He is. He knows that the Father has given all things into His hands. Meaning what? Well, meaning that He's sovereign. Matthew 28, Jesus will say, All authority has been given to me. How much of it? All of it. And so as God the Son, Jesus sitting there is sovereign. He can make these next few hours go any way He wants them to go. He's got all power. And yet in love He will use that power not to save Himself, but to give Himself in dying in our place to save us. Such is the love John is picturing for us here. He will choose to be betrayed. He will choose to take up the cross. He will willingly suffer the penalty our sins deserve. This is the full extent of His love John is talking about which Jesus now demonstrates to His disciples in a very living way by what He does next. Which then brings us to the next thing to see, and that is the humility of Christ here. The humility of Christ's love in becoming our servant in death. You remember how Isaiah 53 uses that language of of Christ as the suffering servant, and here we see this picture of Him the servant. Verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands and that He had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside His garments and taking up a towel, tied it around His waist. Then He poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel wrapped around Him. Listen, be amazed at this. You've you've already seen it too many times. Imagine you're reading this for the first time. Be amazed. Watch Him here. Is this how kings act? Is this your view of a sovereign sitting with His men? No, no, no. Kings don't do this. Kings reign. Kings command. Kings send others to do their bidding. They don't wash feet. They don't do this. I mean, Jesus is turning the world on its head by doing these things. Now, John tells us that he got up from supper. That's your dramatic move. Remember, they're not sitting at a table like we would tend to do if I, if I top, pop these legs out and set this up and put a chair next to it. That, that's not the scene at all. They're, they're seated around a low table like this with, with blankets and pillows around it, if you can just imagine this is a big table enough for all of them. And they're leaning on one elbow around this table. Each of them uh, literally nestled up against the others. Remember how John will lean back up on the breast of Jesus at some point in this dinner. Uh, so in, in typical Mideastern style, they're, they're, they're reclined. That's actually the word, upon pillows around this table. So when Jesus gets up off the floor, it, it makes a bit of a scene. He can't just slip out from the table uh, like we can and, and not make much of, a, much of a big ado. This instantly draws every eye at the table to Him. And as they watch Him, there's a growing sense of embarrassment that begins to creep over them because Jesus doesn't get up to issue commands or to send someone out to get more bread. Instead, we're told He, he begins to disrobe. 
He takes off his outer garment. And it's more significant than that. Had he been dressed like we were, it might say that he, he took off his coat and tie, began to roll up his sleeves. Even more than that, perhaps there is over in the corner somewhere a broom closet. In that broom closet, there's a, there's a pair of janitor's coveralls. And he slips on those coveralls. Well, what it says is he takes the towel and he wraps it around his waist. But for them, that's going to be the picture of a slave. Because the way the slave would have dressed who served at any gathering like that would have been in the under tunic, not an outer cloak, with a towel wrapped around his waist. And the disciples are watching this and they begin to understand what's coming here and that's going to be the reason for their amazement. I mean, can you just imagine them as they're seeing him do this? I mean, they've got to be thinking, what on earth is he doing? And then when he reaches for the basin and begins to pour water into it, their sense of embarrassment grows. I imagine faces begin to blush red when he begins to do that because now they understand where this is headed. By the way, notice the basin and water are already there in the room. Uh, Apparently, whoever rented this room to them provided the water in the basin, only for the washing of hands, but, but because it was just part of the culture, everyone knew this. Before you ever reclined to eat dinner, the assumption is someone has to begin washing your feet. Somehow the feet need to be clean. I mean, I mean, think about it. Everybody wore open sandals. I don't have any real cool sandals like the Webers wear, so I, I've just got flip-flops. But, but, but so they were open shoes. And, and the streets you're walking on all day are dirt. And if it's rained or someone's tossed water out in the street, there's mud and there's animals and the kind of stuff that comes out of animals. And so not to be crass, but there's donkey dew on those streets. And you've been walking on those streets all day long at this point, and you're about to sit down to supper. Remember again, your feet aren't tucked neatly under a table away from the meal. You are reclining and one guy's up next to you and his feet are close to you and the other guy's feet are close and someone's feet are close to you. Right? And you've got whatever you brought with you from the street there on those feet. That's where the water comes in. Right? Sometimes there actually would be a servant provided in a, in, when there's wealth, a wealthy home right, to, to begin washing the feet. And by the way, not just any old servant, because even servants hated this job. It tended to fall to the very lowliest of slaves in the house. In fact, there was actually a Jewish law on the books at this time that forbade uh, the, the, a, a Jewish servant from having to do this disgusting task. You know, get some poor enslaved Gentile, make him do it, because this was seen as demeaning. This was beneath the dignity of one man to clean another man's feet. Now in some cases, a wife uh, might possibly wash her husband's feet to show him honor, and a, a child, his parents, a disciple, his master, but even these were rare, and never, ever, ever the other way around. But when they'd come to dinner that night, there was no servant. Not one of them volunteered to do it. In fact, I imagine as they came in and they saw the water basin, they sort of skidded to the other side of the room. 
Because I don't know if you remember in Luke's Gospel, he says as they were coming in on their way to this meal, there'd actually been an argument, a discussion about which one of them was the greatest. And now none of them wants to demean himself by playing the slave to others. And so they sat there, reclined around that table with their filthy feet. Because they were all too proud to do it. I wonder, what do you consider too demeaning, too beneath your dignity to do for a brother or sister in Christ or or for your family for that matter? Do you understand that the things you will not do to serve others say a lot about you and what you think of yourself? I'm not going to do that. You can't make me do that. Someone else, not me. Do you, like these disciples, have an overinflated view of yourself that keeps you from serving others, from being the first to serve rather than having to be commanded, told, cajoled, or you just won't do it? But you'll notice that what they refused to do out of what? Arrogance? Pride? Jesus did willingly out of love. He rose from supper, laid aside his outer garment, taking the towel, tied it around his waist like a servant, poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel wrapped around him. The language here is is striking. In fact, John's choice of words in this incident tell us that more is going on here than just the washing of feet. This is, in fact, an acted parable. Jesus is demonstrating to them and us the great heights of His love and the depths of His humility in giving that love to whom, to these whom He has chosen to save. Two passages of Scripture in the New Testament help us see that. The first is in John 10, if you want to flip back a couple of pages to that one. And the second is in Philippians 2, and prepare that one as well. First of all, John chapter 10, beginning in verse 14, there's a connection between these two passages that demonstrates to us beyond the foot washing that Jesus in love willingly lays down His life for us and takes it up again in victory. Notice as I read this, I'm going to make some emphases. John chapter 10 verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, so I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep who are not of this fold. Speaking of us, Gentiles, I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock and one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my Father. And notice those words I emphasize to lay down and to take up. Jesus says, I choose to lay down my life and I take it up again. And then we come to John 13, verse 4, and Jesus says that he lays down, it says, John says that Jesus lays down his garment and takes up the towel, and he's using the same words. 
And later in verse 12, it says, after he washes their feet, he takes up the garment again and resumes his place at the head of the table. And again, the same words. Now you say, well, of course, what other words would he use? These aren't the normal words for that activity. Uh, John could have said this in, in other ways, but he chooses to use these same words because he's wanting us to make the connection and see this is a picture of what Jesus has done for us in his dying and rising again. He laid aside his glory just as he laid aside his outer garment. He stooped to be a servant and then he took up his glory again to sit down at the Father's right hand at the head of the table of all eternity. Jesus has just acted out the very thing he told them was going to happen. That's John 10. Now look at Philippians chapter 2. Paul picks this up. Chapter 2, verse 5, Paul wants us to understand that Jesus the King set aside His glory to become a slave in order to save us from our sins. Listen to His language. Philippians 2, verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is also yours in Christ Jesus. little pause there. That's where we'll go next week. Jesus not only did this to demonstrate who He is, but to remind us of who we must be. That we must take up the same attitude. Jesus, who though He was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, something to be held on to and clung to for his own benefit, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant or slave. It's the word doulos. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. And again, the language here is striking because the picture Paul paints is exactly what we see Jesus doing in this lived illustration of His humility. Paul says that He was in the very nature God. John says He knew He'd come from God and was going back to God. Paul says He didn't cling to His status and prerogatives of deity. John says He laid aside His robes in order to become a servant. Paul says he humbled himself and became a slave. John says he took the towel of a slave and began to serve them. Paul says he was obedient to the point of death. John says he loved them to the very end. Paul says, therefore God highly exalted him. And John says he, re- he will return to the Father's glory. I mean, what a display of the humble love of Christ in becoming our Savior. Later, Paul will say in 2 Corinthians 8 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sakes He became poor, so that you by His poverty may become rich. That's the love of Jesus for those who belong to Him. That's the depth of His humility. Which brings us into this third thing that we must see, and that is that the humble servant love of Christ must humble you if you're to receive it. The humble servant love of Christ must humble us if we're to receive it. One commentary said this, as Jesus began to wash their feet, there was not a sound heard except for the sound of the water being poured from one basin to another over their feet and the sound of drying as He dried those formerly filthy 
feet. If you get the picture again, Jesus kneels gently beside each man, pouring the water from one basin to another over their feet, drying them with a towel wrapped around his waist. And I imagine not a word is, is said. In fact, none are recorded here because, again, they're too shocked. They're, they're, more than that, they're humiliated. This is embarrassing for them personally. I mean, what they had refused to do for one another, Jesus is now doing for them. I've tried to picture in my mind this embarrassment in terms maybe we can understand because most of us don't feel the same revulsion about feet they do. Most of us. There's a couple here that do, I think. But let's say that, let's say that you were, by some tragic accident, paralyzed and bedridden. And the person you admire most in the world, some famous person that, that, that you most want to meet, some person you admire for their, their character and, and their strength, comes to visit you. While he or she is there visiting you, you get sick, you throw up. And this person begins to wipe the vomit off your sheets. And you've soiled yourself. And this person begins to clean the filth that's in your bed out of love for you. You'd be horrified, I think. They're horrified by this. Shocked into silence. Well, except for one of them. Right? And we know who that is. Peter blurts out what they all must have been thinking. Verse 6, he comes to Simon Peter, who can't contain it anymore. He says, Lord, do you wash my feet? And the way it's put in the original, it's you, me, as if the you is in big capital letters and the me is in these little tiny script that can barely be seen. The whole point is no way. It's not right. And Jesus answers him so gently. Verse 7, Peter, what I'm doing now, you don't understand, but afterward, you will. I know you can't see it just yet, Peter. That's okay. It'll come to you later. You'll understand later. And by later, he means after the cross and resurrection. Because only, only by seeing the full picture of what Christ came to do will any of this make sense. So essence, what Jesus is saying is, Peter, just let me love you. Let me do this. It's not going to make sense to you. But afterwards it will. And sometimes, dear Christian, you don't understand what Christ is doing. You don't understand why He's doing it the way He's doing it. It doesn't make any sense. And you just need to sit back and just let Him love you this way. Let Him do what only He is willing to do. Well, Peter is too embarrassed for that. I picture him drawing his feet back under him and and saying more urgently in verse 7, You shall never wash my feet. In fact, it's about as strong a statement as you can make in the original. I'll give it to you a little more literally because there's a part that doesn't make that much sense in English. That's our English translation. Just sort of clip it. But basically what he says is, Never, ever, you will never wash my feet for all eternity. Maybe we would say, you will never, never wash my feet, not in a million years. He's not having it. He's too embarrassed. I know it sounds like maybe he's being humble here, but really, if you think about it, it it is a kind of arrogance. Because what Peter is saying is, I refuse to receive what you're trying to give me because it would be too painful for me. One brother said that Peter refuses the grace of God because he's embarrassed 
by his need of it. Peter refuses the grace of God because he's embarrassed by his need of it. You ever been guilty of that? Refusing to receive the cleansing Christ gives because you're embarrassed that you need it so bad? You're embarrassed to see Him reach out His hand and, and, and touch your filth and to take it upon Himself. By now, that, that towel around His waist, it's filthy because He's been taking the filth of, that they brought into that room upon Himself and they're embarrassed by this. Are you embarrassed to see Him take your filth? Are you embarrassed to see Him reach out His hand and touch that place of sexual sin? Touch that place of your pornography. Touch that place of your blasphemous thoughts, of your faithless words, of your anger to a brother or sister, of your self-centeredness. Are you embarrassed that Jesus not only knows about it, but that He's actually coming and putting His hands on it so that He can cleanse you? Does it feel like too much that He would do this for you? Surely you're not worthy of that. But, but dear one, remember, this is why He came. His love is reaching out to you, ready to cleanse you. And if you'll trust Him, He'll do it. And again, Peter answered, Jesus answers Peter, I'm sorry, in verse 8. And I think as we read this, we have to see a smile of love on Jesus' faith. It is a rebuke, but it's a rebuke that is so full of mercy, so ready to cleanse and embrace Peter that it almost hurts. Verse 8, You'll never wash my feet, Jesus answers him, if I don't wash you. You have no share with me. You have no share with me. Peter, this is why I came and you've got to be a part of this. And again, with these words, we realize that this is talking about something much deeper than dirty feet. This is talking about Jesus' sin-cleansing mission that He's been illustrating by the washing of their feet. And He tells Peter, the only way you can have fellowship with Me and enter into the joy of My inheritance, because that word share there means an inheritance, the only way you can, you can do that is if you submit to being cleansed by Me. And, and friend, that is true of you as well. Jesus came to cleanse us from sin and restore us to fellowship with God. And the only way that's going to happen for you is if you humble yourself and let Jesus wash you by faith. You've got to surrender to Him. You've got to trust Him. You've got to let Him love you like this because this is how He came. This is why He came. And so Peter, you've got to love Peter. Peter just flips, runs the other direction, right out of one ditch into the other. Identify with Peter. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, okay, if that's the deal, not my feet only, but my hands and my head. I mean, if there's stuff you've got to give, I want all of it, Lord. Give it all to me. And I think we have to give Peter an A for attitude, but perhaps an F for understanding. Because he still didn't get it. And Jesus is going to have to explain it to him. And I'm so glad Peter is so dense. Because what Jesus says in explaining it next is really sweet. Verse 10, Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed, the one who has been washed, does not need to wash, again, except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean. Not every one of you.
Notice what Jesus is saying. So important. The cleansing bath, the once for all time cleansing bath we receive by faith in Christ when we come to the gospel gives us everything we need to be clean and to live before Him. Hear it again. The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean. But not every one of you. What is that saying? As simply as I can put it, it's saying this. When you come to Christ by faith, His blood cleanses you from all sin. Take that in. First John 1 John 1.7 The blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. The cleansing that took place the instant you turned and trusted Him is complete. As soon as you submit to Christ to take the filth of your sin upon Himself and pay its full and everlasting price, it is done. It is finished. That's the bath He's talking about here. That this once for all action where Christ's blood washes away your sin. And that word bathe that he uses there is, is in what's called the perfect tense. Meaning it's, a, it's completed. It's a done deal. We're looking at it as if we're standing back seeing it's completed, finished state. Meaning, Christian, you stand complete in your washing. You ought to shout about that. Which is why he says, you are clean. So once you've had this bath by faith, you don't need a rebath. When you sin as a Christian, it doesn't set you back to zero in a state of utter filth. It just gets dirt on your feet. And you're like a man, and I'm like a man walking uh, around who's had the bath, and he's clean, but he's out in the streets, and walking those streets, he gets mud on his shoes. And so, yes, as Christians, we still step into sin. We're not immune to it. Those who've had a bath still need Jesus and the daily cleansing that comes from Jesus because we live in this world. Our feet get dirty, which is why Jesus says, except for your feet... Those who've had this bath need this daily cleansing that comes from walking with Jesus. By the way, I'm getting longer than I wanted to be, but that word cleansing that he uses here is the same word that's used in 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So there's a little picture of the Christian life. Once for all, washed by Jesus through faith, we are clean and we come back to Jesus daily so that we may walk in the cleanness He provides. You are clean, He says. But not all of you. Because lest we forget, Judas is at the table. Verse 11 says, For Jesus knew who was going to betray Him. That's why He said, Not all of you are clean. Clean. Apparently, this has meant nothing to Judas. He's just sat there letting it bounce off of him. It hasn't penetrated into his soul. He hasn't applied it to faith. He is not clean. Listen to me, please. Just being in the room where cleansing takes place does not mean that you yourself are clean. Just because you take part in the ritual, just because you have experienced the outward cleansing of baptism or held the symbols of Christ's body and blood in your hands, doesn't make you clean. It takes Christ 
by faith. It's Christ and coming to Christ by faith that cleanses the soul. And, and, and that's what makes you clean. That's what makes you His. That's what assures you that you are His forever. And you have this inheritance forever in Him and with Him. But you must come to Christ for the bath that He gives. And then walk with Christ daily in the cleansing that He provides. Bottom line, friend, come to Jesus. Let Him do what only He can do. Let's pray and then we'll share the Lord's table together. Lord Jesus, King, Savior, Redeemer, Friend, the cleansing that we need has been fully provided through You. Your grace is enough. It is fully sufficient. Your love goes to the uttermost and cleanses us thoroughly. And Lord, it is that love and that grace that we trust. Pray for every believer in this room, Lord, that we will trust You and we will hear You say, You are clean. And believe it. And I pray for the one here who longs to be clean, who has never had the bath of that trusting Christ definitively. I pray that You would give grace to repent and believe the Gospel good news that they too may know, I am clean through Jesus. In His name. Amen. Stand with me. Let's sing this song and then we'll, we'll briefly share the Lord's table together. And if you would be seated. The Lord's Supper is Christ's declaration to us that we are His and we are clean. And here we see once again Jesus as a servant kneeling down and taking up the cross. Pouring out His life, not just water in a basin, but His blood shed for our sins. So what does He require of us as we approach this table? One thing, nothing but faith. That we would see Him for who He is, that we would trust Him for what He's done, and that we would let Him love us in this way. And so you brought nothing to this table but your sin. He's bringing everything as you trust Him. And so will you trust Him? Will you let Him love you by taking away your filth? That's a word to the one who doesn't yet believe, but it's also a word of reminder to the believer. Will you believers hear Him say to you, you are clean and believe it? That's what I'd like you to think about as we prepare. And so brothers, come and let's prepare the table. The guys that are going to share, if you guys would come. Fix your eyes on Jesus through these symbols, on what He's done. Don't argue with Him about your sin or your worthiness or unworthiness. Believe Him when He looks at you and says, because of what I have done, you who trust in Me, you are clean. And so as we distribute these, let your mind fix upon that promise. Believe the declaration of Jesus through the Gospel that the Christian is clean. If you're not in Christ, if you've never trusted, believe the promise of Jesus that any who come to Me I will not cast out. If you come by faith, repenting of your sin, trusting what I have done, you also will receive the cleansing of that I give.
And so hold the elements and we'll share them together and hear this declaration from Christ. Lord, we remember the cleansing of sin that comes to us, the wholeness that becomes ours through your brokenness. And we give thanks. The same way He took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And Lord, we remember your blood that washes away all sin. We remember that your death cleanses these sins and unites us to you in fellowship with God. And we can hear you say, not just to Peter, but to us, by faith in my finished work, you are clean. So often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes.